The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. I want to introduce you to Rachel, and I'm really looking forward to this talk because no one is better qualified, in my opinion, to give it than Rachel, who's a long-standing member of the ISO and, uh, and a long-time activist. And before that, she was an act- uh, a member of the Socialist Alternative in Australia, and she's a student in modern religion, uh, completing a doctorate in anthropology towards that end, and works as a research assistant on a project studying uh, Christian religious experience. So I'm going to pass it over to Rachel. Thanks, Josh, and um, thank you, everyone. Uh, it's nice to be here this morning talking about... This is um, the first time I've spoken about Marxism and religion in a talk like this, so it's also very exciting for me, given that um, it's the field that I work in. So um, a few nights ago, when I was preparing for this talk, I decided to take a walk around my neighbourhood. I live in the Mission District in San Francisco, just across the bay, and on the way home, I was seven blocks from my house, I decided to count how many religious institutions I, I passed on the way home. So there was a Catholic church, there was an evangelical church, there was another Protestant church, a Southern Baptist church, there was what I think was a synagogue, uh, and there was a Church of Christ Scientist, which all in all added up to six religious institutions in seven city blocks. And I felt like this was like a lesson in architecture for the kind of... Um, so granted, I live in a neighbourhood called The Mission that was named after 18th century <laughs> Spanish missions, but you know, uh, I still think that you know, this is a real story about the centrality of religion in our social landscape and also in the lives of many working people. So the US is a fairly religious country, and by that I don't mean like the stereotype of, you know, Bible-thumping social conservatives. I think that religious people in this country um, have a whole spectrum of political ideas, a whole spectrum of social ideas, and also a whole spectrum of religious commitment. But, um, but there are a lot of religious people in this country. So according to the Pew Report in 2008, which um, surveyed American religious life, 92% of Americans believe in God or some kind of universal spirit. say religion is important in their lives. 58% pray daily. 5% of atheists pray daily. 39% of people attend worship service weekly and another 33% attend worship services on a less regular basis. So given how central religion is to many people's lives today, I think it behooves us as socialists and as other activists to have something meaningful to say about religion. And, uh, you know, after all, Marxists do have an opinion on just about everything. So Marxists hold to a materialist understanding of, of human history, and by that I mean that what happens historically is seen as the product of concrete relations, relationships between humans and between classes of humans in the sensuous material world. It's not by spiritual influences that history develops, but rather by hu- that human ideas, including religious ideas, are themselves products of history, conditioned by our material lives, how our needs are met, how things are produced, the way we relate to our environment, and so on. But humans are also creative thinking creatures and religion has been a part of human life through most or all of human history as far as we know ever since humans first thought complex ideas developed language and art and so on. So for those of us who hold to such a materialist conception of the world the onus is on us to understand this reality. And it's also true that religion plays a central role in many of the political struggles that we know today. 
So some are secular battles that wear religious dress, and by that I mean there's an underlying material dynamic which is given expression in part in religious terms. So the occupation of Palestine is one example, the fight for marriage equality in this country is another. But there are also cases, I would suggest, um, of religious persecution that are dressed in secular clothing. And by this I mean in particular the bans that have happened in France and, and in Germany on Muslim religious wear um, and also that are, that are continuing to be threatened. So at the moment they're threatening um, to ban the burqa and the niqab, the, the full facial veil um, in France. Um, and they're, they're basically going through a process in their parliament to start to do that. So I, I would say now these bans also have an underlying material dynamic. They promote racism um, in the interests of the French ruling class. But these things are doubly disguised by being a religious attack justified in terms of French secularism and in terms of women's rights. So they're justified in secular terms even though they have a religious component to them. And I think we need a theory or theories to help us navigate this complex and sometimes tricky terrain of where religion and politics meet. And unfortunately, I think that socialists and activists don't always get this right. So last year, when the California court brought down its decision upholding Prop 8 and upholding the ban on same-sex marriage in, in this state, thousands of people came out on the street in protest. In San Francisco, hundreds joined a civil disobedience, blocking the street outside of City Hall. Among those arrested were pastors and ministers and priests, as well as a lot of other religious people. But later that day, as we marched down Market Street, a group of us were in front of a contingent of self-identified socialists chanting slogans that were hostile to religion. Slogans like, free your brain, religion is a heavy chain. And the somewhat less sophisticated, excuse my language internet, fuck Leviticus. Okay, so the problem here, I think, seems fairly clear. Slogans like these have nothing to say to the religious people who that morning paid a price to defend marriage equality by getting arrested. They simply serve to alienate people. They risk dividing our movement and weakening us. While religious ideas were used by proponents to, of Prop 8 to justify the ban, responding in religious terms, I think, just plays into their hands. It can't help us win our struggle to fight for marriage equality. In the case of the niqab and burqa ban, I think the situation is even more worrying. So Sarkozy, the French Prime Minister who proposed the ban, is a well-known racist. A few years ago, he called young Muslims in the suburban rebellion scum. So I think the pretense that he's used of concern for liberating Muslim women is actually very thin indeed. In fact, I would suggest that his call for a ban on um, Muslim religious clothing is nothing more than thinly disguised racism and religious oppression. But unfortunately, sections of the French socialist left have either supported the ban or been lukewarm in their opposition to it. And once again, I feel like this plays into the hands of the racists who seek to divide French workers from each other. I think their position reflects a mistaken understanding of how Marxists should relate to questions of religion and secularism, and so I'm going to go into that question later on in my talk too. But suffice it to say for now that when it comes to questions of religion and politics, it's not always easy for revolutionaries and for socialists to see clearly and to get these questions right. So we need theory to help guide us, and fortunately we have a very strong legacy left to us, um, particularly by Marx, by Engels, his close collaborator, and also by the Russian revolutionary Lenin. Now, for various historical reasons, this legacy has unfortunately come down to us in mixed form, and so it's not always well understood, and it's often thought of in very simplistic terms. But if we actually go back and mine the writings of um, these socialists, what we find is a rich and nuanced understanding of religion that can help guide us in all sorts of situations today. So before I go into this further, I have a disclaimer, um, which is that for most of this talk I'll be using examples from Christianity, which is my own background and a large part of what I've studied. 
And I hope people here will speak up with examples from other religious traditions, if you know about them, no doubt, with more knowledge than I could. So, a little of my own history. I was born into a liberal Anglican family, which is like Episcopalian um, in my country. So, my parents were very dedicated Christians. Before I could really talk or carry a tune, my mother recorded me singing songs about Jesus. Uh, In the mid-70s, my parents co-founded a kind of hippie Christian community in Sydney called Middle Earth. My mother was an Earth mother. We were Earth children, my sister and I. (laughs) When I was five, my father was ordained to the priesthood. My sister and I grew up um, in church halls and riding our uh, push bikes around graveyards. And uh, we stopped having to go to church after my parents divorced, but I stayed a Christian um, well into my 20s. I sang in the choir, I served on the church council, and I was inspired by the liberation theology and feminist theology that I was reading. And I even briefly considered ordination myself, but the main thing that held me back was that we just couldn't seem to win full equality for women or for LGBT people um, in the clergy. And eventually, when my own minister openly expressed his oppos- uh, openly, refused to openly express his opposition to the war in Afghanistan, and when 14 Australian bishops wrote to the US Episcopal Church opposing the consecration of Jean Robinson as the first openly gay Anglican bishop, um, at that point I walked away. But and as a priest kid, I also saw a lot of the internal politics of church life, the church as an institution and as an employer. My father's second wife sought ordination but was forced to remain a deacon with less authority and less pay throughout most of my teenage years until they won women's ordination in the early 90s. And I remember learning from the inside about uh, an orchestrated right-wing attack which led to a modernising bishop being entrapped by police for soliciting sex with a man near a beat. And later I watched as the church took my father to court and ruthlessly undermined him as he sought workers' compensation for a nervous breakdown. So contrary to a widespread understanding of Marxism, Marxists don't see religion as simple as a simple uniform thing. Like everything else in class society, we seek to understand religious beliefs and institutions as complex and contested. My own history illustrates some of the push and pull of religious life and its relationship to the secular world. But as I said earlier, the bottom line of Marx's materialist method says that human ideas, culture, philosophy and religion are rooted in material conditions. So the starting point for Marxism is that the prevalence of religious ideas in a given society, as well as the form and shape religious beliefs and practices take, reflect the form and shape of the societies from which they emerge. Now, this idea itself is not unique to Marxism, and social scientists frequently explore and debate the minutiae of the relationship um, of religious beliefs to social and political systems. The anthropologist Marshall Salins um, put it this way. When we were pastoral nomads, the Lord was our shepherd. We were his flock, and he made us to lie down in green pastures. And if you don't recognise this, this is quotes from the Bible. When, the serfs were noble, when we were serfs and nobles, the Lord was our king, sat regnant on the throne of heaven, his shepherd's crook, now a jewelled scepter, monarch of feudal monarchs, even to a prince of evil, his own contentious baron. But we were mostly peasants, and our comfort and justice no longer lay in the green pastures but in the land, and we would have it. We would inherit the earth. Marx, when he was writing in the 1840s, took his point of departure from prominent materialist thinkers such as Ludwig Feuerbach, who were making similar claims about the human origins of religion. And during this period, the Lutheran Church um, was heavily intertwined with the Prussian state, um, which used Christian religious claims to justify its rule and maintain social repression. So at the time, the idea that religion was a human creation, reflecting human social structures, was an incredibly important and radical claim, as it had been 60 years earlier for the French revolutionaries, the deists and the secular humanists and so on as they prepared for revolution. And I'm not going to go into um, that that kind of French materialism, but if people want to talk about that, I encourage it. So you had the French Revolution 
Uh, and then uh, you had, you know, half a century later in Germany, you had Feuerbach and these young Hegelians making this religion, religious critique. And Feuerbach's argument was that religion emerging out of human society has a tendency to remove meaning from sensuous, concrete, this-worldly human existence and displace it into a spiritual realm. So the holy family is a mirror for the nuclear family. Well, he, well for, for the earthly family, as he put it at the time. So the young Marx was very inspired by Feuerbach's analysis, but he also argued to take this analysis further, to ask why it is that religion emerges as a reflection of society and to look at the contradictions in society that cause that emergence to happen. It's not enough to say that the holy family is a mirror for the earthly family. We have to look at what this says about, about the earthly family. And he wrote about it um, in this way. Feuerbach starts out from the fact of religious self-alienation of the duplication of the world into a religious world and a secular one. His work consists in resolving the religious world into the secular basis. But that the secular basis detaches itself from itself and establishes itself as an independent realm in the clouds can only be explained by the cleavages and self-contradictions within this secular basis. So the latter, the secular basis, must therefore in itself be both understood in its contradiction and revolutionised in practice. So that's what Marx said about it. What does this mean? It means that to understand the Lord is our shepherd, we need to look at the contradictions that existed in pastoral nomad life at the time. Now, I don't know anything, actually, really, about uh, the life of shepherds in ancient Palestine, but but I think, you know, it's telling to say the line following the Lord is is my shepherd in the psalm is, I shall not want. And then it goes on to talk very poetically about God being there while we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and so on. And I think that, you know, when we think about that, a God that is our shepherd, we must suppose is one that can provide the earthly shepherd an answer to what we imagine were probably their grave concerns, freedom from want, security from deprivation, support in dark times, and so on. The direction of Marx's work on religion was always to return these religious questions to their secular implications, not simply to understand religion in material terms, but with an eye for the tensions and the dynamic of these material conditions from which religious matters derive their impetus. And he argued it is the immediate task of philosophy, which is in the service of history, to unmask self-estrangement in its unholy forms once the holy forms of human self-estrangement has been unmasked. Thus, the criticism of heaven turns into the criticism of earth, the criticism of religion into the criticism of law, and the criticism of theology into the criticism of politics. For Marx, the chief concern was not critique of religion, but practical political activity, levelled against what he called the cleavages and self-contradictions that he argued exist in in the physical material world. Um, and to kind of expand on that somewhat, I think it's worth looking at I think what I think is one of the most moving things Marx ever wrote about religion. And this is the passage that contains the famous statement about religion being the opiate of the masses. Now, I'm sure you're all or most of you are familiar with this quote. It's one of the most widely quoted and also, unfortunately, one of the most misunderstood things that Marx um, ever wrote. So most often it's presented as, as an elitist claim, you know, that Marx thought that people were dupes, that they were kind of drugged out and didn't know what they were doing, kind of stuck on this fix of religion and so on. And this is not at all what Marx meant. At the time he wrote this line, um, opium was a widely available painkiller, something like Vicodin today. Actually, opium generally sharpens the senses rather than dulls them, from what I understand. So the point was, <laughs> was to soothe, not to stupefy. So let's say, you know, so, so 
you know, to really see this impact, we kind of want to understand the full quote. And um, so we've got religion is the Vicodin of the masses, but, um, but let's look at the full quote in this context. All right. So religious suffering, Marx wrote, is at one and the same time the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. To call on them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusions. The criticism of religion is therefore in embryo the criticism of that veil of tears of which religion is the halo. The point of this passage is not to critique religious belief, but to sympathise with believers to expose the underlying social conditions that reveal the true suffering of which religious belief is a reflection. And if we look at the social science evidence, despite the fact that unfortunately most social scientists ignore the legacy that Marx left us, um, there's actually quite a lot of evidence to back up this kind of reading of how um, people respond to religion. So um, a few uh, social surveys recently have looked at co kind of cross-national studies and compared data between countries on religious belief, on religious practice, on frequency of prayer and other things like that. So one recent study looked at income inequality and frequency of prayer and they found that the more unequal a society, the greatest sense of personal insecurity and the more often people are inclined to pray. Another study demonstrated an inverse relationship between state welfare spending and religiosity. So the less a society spends on welfare, the more people turn to religion for comfort and support. For example, in the US, religious belief remains quite high, and this has long been confusing for social scientists who argue that as countries become wealthier and industrialised, people tend to become less religious. Now, that is true in general, but the US has always been an outlier in that. Despite being the richest nation in the world and one of the most industrialised, rates of religious identification and practice in the US remain comparable to many developing uh, countries and considerably higher than any other industrialised country on most measures. But when the level of welfare spending per head is taken into account, the US no longer stands out. Put simply, religiosity in the US can be seen as a response to the fact that it is a much harder and more insecure country to live in than other industrialised nations. Now, correlation is not causation, so there's other ways to read this data, and I'm sure social scientists will dispute it until the revolution. But I will say that, you know, what I hear daily in my work bears this out. For a living, I listen to interviews uh, um, of Christians talking about how they see God operating in their lives, and the things they talk about most often and first up are things like finding a job, stress at work, stress raising children, worries about money and health. In other words, the everyday conditions of capitalism. In a world that heaps enormous responsibilities on every single person to try to figure out how to deal with everything in their lives and to make it through, it's no wonder that people look for God being active in their lives. And I really think that this is one of the reasons um, for the growth in popularity of ideas of Jesus as a personal saviour that have really taken off in the last 40 years, that, um, that Jesus or, or God or, or a spiritual entity is active in, in, our, in our lives, um, especially in this country. That's a very popular idea in, in Christian religion these days. And I think for unemployed people passed over for yet another job interview, it's better to understand this is God telling them that this wasn't the right job for them. For single parents raising three kids, believing that God will provide when they don't know when the next, where the, the money for their rent check is going to come from, is an important coping me mechanism just to get by in life. Capitalism is so uncertain, and God and religion and, and prayer provide some kind of support and some kind of certainty. As Lenin put it, 
The roots of modern religion are deeply embedded in the social oppression of the working masses and in their apparently complete helplessness before the blind forces of capitalism, which every day and every hour cause a thousand times more horrible suffering and torture for ordinary working folk than are caused by exceptional events such as war, earthquakes, etc. Fear of the blind force of capital, blind because its action cannot be foreseen by the masses, a force which at every step in life threatens the worker and the small businessman with sudden, unexpected, accidental destruction and ruin, bringing in their train beggary, pauperism, prostitution and deaths from starvation. This is the taproot of modern religion, which first of all and above all the materialist must keep in mind if he does not wish to remain stuck forever in the kindergarten of materialism. And that's the real indictment, what it is that people feel they have to do to find some sort of stability, to make some sort of sense of a world that abuses them so casually. As Marx said, religious suffering is at one and the same time the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. In situations where other answers to these problems are not immediately apparent, where trying to improve your situation through political activity and strikes and unionisation and protests can seem so far off for most people, it's no wonder that religion provides them with a real sense of an answer. So long as those questions are not answered in fact, so long as material solutions do not present themselves, religion will continue to be an important source of essential material and psychological support. And, you know, the other kind of lot of research that's actually been done shows that religion is, actually does make a material difference in people's lives. Having religion improves your mental health. It, uh, it's associated with higher rates of happiness, morale, with satisfaction in life, with lower rates of substance addiction, and actually it's associated with measurably faster rates of recovery from depression. So we need to see that Religion does play a, a, a real um, role in people's lives. People seek community and social support. They look for meaning and order and security in their lives. Many look for these things in their religion. They may have cathartic experiences in rituals. They may learn to relax themselves through meditation. And through all of these means, um, religion can make a material difference. And this is not to say uh, to any of the atheists in the room that, that you, know, you should take up religion. There are other ways to improve your mental health and find happiness. Actually, research has also shown a positive correlation between protesting and mental health. So that's good news for a lot of <laughs> but, um, but I think this does help cut against the argument that religious people are simply dupes. People know the effect that religion has on their lives because they experience it for themselves. So how do we proceed when religion and politics mix? When churches push for religiously motivated repressive laws like Prop 8 or when governments attempt to make a religious ban in the name of secularism like in France? If religion is a real response to oppression and injustice, both the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering, it makes no sense to expect or hope that it will go away under capitalism. Nor should we ever act like we expect this to be the case. As I would argue, um, sections of the left did in both of these cases. So to take the burqa ban, for example, to understand this, I think it's useful to take a step back and to look at the nature of secularism in capital capitalist society. Actually, Marx himself took up similar questions in response to another religious critic, Bruno Bauer. And to simplify Bauer's argument as I understand it, he proposed that Jewish people should not seek to win political rights under the Christian state since the real issue was emancipation from religion in general. But Marx argued that this misunderstands the nature of political emancipation from religion under a capitalist system. And he, referring to you know, the political revolutions that ushered in capitalism, Marx argued, man emancipates himself politically from religion by banishing it from the sphere of public law to that of private law. In other words, to make religion a matter of private conscience. The political demand for secularism that we should make under capitalism is a demand for separation of church and state and for full freedom of religion as a private matter. If a state introduces a law dictating what actions particular pe religious people must or may not do, 
a law that says, for example, what clothes they can wear. A government is reintroducing religious questions, questions of conscience, back into public law. By oppressing the practitioners of a minority religion, it is showing favouritism to a majority religion. According to Marx, it continues to operate in the sphere of theology rather than politically. It is thereby guilty of behaving not as a secular state but as a religious one. So those sections of the French left who support the ban on the burqa in the name of a socialist demand for secularism completely mistake what the nature of a political demand for secularism must be. They make the same kind of mistake that Bauer made in equating secularism in capitalist society with freedom from religion altogether. But as Marx points out, full political secularism doesn't rid us of religion. He quotes Bauer himself, who points out the secular nature of the North American states. He says, uh, so Bauer says, indeed there are some North American states where the Constitution does not impose any religious belief or religious practices as a condition of political rights. Nevertheless, in the United States, people do not believe that a man without religion could be an honest man. Nevertheless, Marx adds, North America is preeminently the country of religiosity. So you don't rid, you know, by, by actually introducing secular laws, you're not ridding uh, a state of religion. You're, you're um, as he said, making it a private matter, a matter of private conscience. And the core of Marx's argument is that people cannot be freed from any religious ideas that they might hold to, even ones that could limit the possibilities of their own fulfilment by law or by any other mandate. He says, we do not assert that religious people must overcome their religious narrowness in order to get rid of their secular restrictions. We assert that they will overcome their religious narrowness once they get rid of their secular restrictions. Socialists should not demand that people reject religious beliefs to be worthy of our political defence, nor to work alongside us. Quite the contrary. We must welcome anyone to work alongside us in any fight to win greater freedoms under capitalism and to challenge the ruling class's rule. In fact, socialists who follow in the tradition of Marx, that Marx laid out for us um, will tend to make more principled secularists than the capitalists themselves, who are always looking to reintroduce, uh, to get around their own secularism, to insert clauses like one nation under God into pledges of allegiance and so on, undermining freedom of religion and the whole thing. It's a misunderstanding handed down to us by certain, uh, you know, sort of uh, distorted strains of Marxism, that Marxism demands the abolition of religion. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, this is also true in a socialist society. So um, the revolutionary Bolshevik government under Lenin in Russia declared complete freedom of religion after coming to power in 1917. And the de declaration read, every citizen may adhere to any religion or adhere to none. Any limitations before the law related to adherence to any kind of faith or non-adherence to any faith are abolished. What the revolutionary government abolished was not religion itself, but all laws promoting one religion or restricting religious freedom. And I think this is the basis of secularism that we need to be arguing for today. Now, this doesn't mean that for socialists all religious ideas are equal. Marx also said that the ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas. Religious ideas are no exceptions. While not all religious ideas support and maintain class rule, the weight of class rule pulls religious institutions in that direction. It does the same to academic ideas, to economic theory, to journalism and so on, pulling these institutions in a direction of supporting the status quo. So however contested religious ideas are within religious institutions, reactionary politics often end up dominating. The process by which this comes to happen is, of course, incredibly complex, but we can think of it as like an undertow on all knowledge and, and the institutions that produce knowledge, pulling on those institutions, pulling on each person within them with greater or lesser effect, but pulling on everyone in the direction of the interests of the ruling class, of maintaining the current power structures and defending things as they are. It's a product of a million decisions made every minute. So, for example, there are pastors who fight for gay liberation and there are pastors who promote homophobia. 
But which one gets to inaugurate the president? Each decision piles one on top of the other to pull in a conservatising direction and what this means is that religious institutions tend to overall play a conservatising role in society. But socialists must not confuse the symptoms for the source. It is the conservative politics that we oppose, not the religion which oftentimes acts as its vehicle. To put it simply, homophobia doesn't exist in society because the Mormon church or the Catholic church promotes it. It exists because the ruling class relies on it to prop up the nuclear family, to maintain a level of social discipline and sustain the billions of dollars of unpaid reproductive labour performed within the family, mostly by women. Now, that's a big claim, and if you have questions about that claim, I encourage you to check out the gender and sexuality and women's oppression streams um, in this conference. But um, the point is that we must learn to respond to the underlying political questions in in political terms and not in religious terms. And this is for a few reasons. One is that the effects of this undertow are uneven. The leaders of institutions face more pressure to defend ruling ideas. They feel the undertow more strongly and have more of an institutionalised interest in going along with ruling class ideas. But individuals can draw conclusions counter to the prevailing tide based on their life experience. So at the time the Mormon church donated millions of dollars to promoting Prop 8, individual Mormons were protesting, making websites, writing letters and articles against Prop 8 and even speaking out in their churches, even risking excommunication to do so. In any such situation, we need to oppose the politically reactionary policies to oppose the marriage bans while extending our hand fully and warmly to every religious person who chooses to get involved or who might one day want to get involved in our struggles. In fact, in order to hold any kind of appeal for working um, people at all, religions must be able to speak across the class divide to articulate ideas that are meaningful to working people and to poor people. So ideas like the meek shall inherit the earth, that's another quote from the Bible, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. These ideas are absolutely essential in religion, in drawing in poor and working people who form the base of religious institutions. And it's for this reason too that um, religions from time to time and religious ideas can also be used uh, as weapons for progressive purposes and religious people can use their uh, religion as a weapon of liberation to challenge class rule and of course there are many, many, many examples of this from the liberation theology I mentioned earlier to the Buddhist monks who self-immolated in a tragic protest against the US occupation of Vietnam and also to the role of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in the Civil Rights Movement and I just want to do a brief quote from Martin Luther King Jr. on, on this which I think really articulates this is a traditional spirit, spiritual um, that articulates the dignity and pride of a people finally confident to stand up for themselves. He says, once more every Negro, Negro must be able to cry out with his forefathers before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my father and be saved. Religious ideas can be mobilised for reaction and they can be mo- mobilised people into political resistance and we must learn to tell the difference. Can I have the... So individuals will be pulled into movements to change society, even into revolutionary action with any number of ideas. What these movements themselves need is a set of ideas that provide a basis for the broadest possible unity while while pointing forward to the next stage in the struggle against capitalism. Now, the weight of class inertia on social ideas and on organisations is very, very strong. The pressure of money, of power and status is enormous. Capitalist class rule is firmly established with history and facts on the ground in its favour. As socialists, we recognise that to break through this solid wall of class power, ultimately we will need a clear revolutionary politics and revolutionary organisation, one that is unswerving in its commitment to human self-emancipation through the self-activity of working people to challenge capitalist rule and overthrow it. 
Any set of ideas that doesn't point firmly in this revolutionary direction will eventually come up against its own limitations, and this includes religious institutions. The existing organised religions can play progressive roles at different points in time, but they cannot ultimately play that revolutionary role because it's not what they were designed for. And every now and again, actually, religious institutions play a very serious role in, in hampering and holding back the development of people's ideas. Because revolutions are, among other things, a war for ideas, and there come times, therefore, when revolutionaries actually, actually need to take on religious ideas directly. So in Russia under the Tsar, where the Orthodox Church was an arm of the repressive feudal rule, this was exactly what Lenin suggested the Bolsheviks had to do, to stand up in, in the doom of the Russian parliament and actually express a materialist understanding very publicly and very broadly. But most of the time, what Lenin said is that socialists should welcome religious people into the party, that socialists should, uh, should uh, open a hand to religious people to help win them to struggle um, or, or when they're coming into struggle. And as Lenin said, uh, any challenge um, to religious ideas... Um, the propagation of atheism by, the so, by social democracy, as he called it, must be subordinated to the more basic task, the development of the class struggle of the exploited masses against the exploiters. So I would contend that um, today in our struggles, this is, you know, this is the central issue, actually how we take any struggle forward. Um, and, and the propagation of atheist ideas is not the central role for socialists today. Um, on the contrary, socialists could do damage by deciding to take this up at the wrong time and in the wrong way. And we've seen that in some of these examples I've given. So to, to basically sum up uh, on this point, the, the job of socialists, along with other activists, is to figure out how to extend our hand um, to, to religious people who are getting involved religious people who are standing up against imperialism, injustice or oppression, uh, people religious people standing up um, for LGBT rights, um, and religious people being persecuted for their faith, as they are, uh, Muslims are around the world today. Uh, the role of socialists is to, uh, is to hold out our hands to them and to protest their oppression. There are many steps along the road to human liberation and many people will develop many ideas before the majority conclude the need for revolutionary overthrow of capitalism by working class self-activity. The process of people engaging in struggle for their own and each other's emancipation from class rule will be a far superior teacher of liberation from ruling ideas of society than anything we might say in the process. As Lenin wrote, no amount of reading matter, however enlightening, will eradicate religion from those masses who are crushed by the grinding toil of capitalism and subjected to the blind destructive forces of capitalism until these masses themselves learn to fight against the social facts from which religion arises in a united, disciplined, planned and conscious manner, until they learn to fight against the rule of capital in all its forms. Now, before I finish up, I just want to take a couple of minutes to talk about the so-called new atheism of Christopher Hitchens and people like that, who would do well to he heed Lenin's words above. I don't want to dignify them with very much space, actually, but it's worth a few brief comments. Um, generally, these, the arguments of these atheists boil down to this, that religious ideas are wrong because science is better, that religious texts say bad things, and religious people do bad things, and therefore religion is bad. Hitchens' logic is incredibly circular in, in his main book. He talks about Martin Luther King, for example, but he argues that King's leadership was incompatible with the God of the Hebrew Bible. His conclusion on this famous pastor and religious leader is, therefore, in no real sense was he a Christian. In other words, he very clumsily sets up a straw horse in order to destroy it. Suffice it to say, these arguments of the new atheism are not really new and are fairly simplistic when it comes to the whole history of religious criticism. These atheists wouldn't stand up for a second against the subtleties of Feuerbach or the French materialists, let alone against Marx and Engels. At best, 
The new atheism is a cheap form of what Marx and Engels called fighting against phrases. But often it gets a lot worse than this um, because uh, some of the new atheists can be incredibly dangerous in the ideas that they put forward. And Christopher Hitchens is one of the main uh, uh, examples of this, he, uh, offering support for political reaction in the form of atheist critiques. So when discussing 9-11 and the Afghanistan and Iraq wars in his book, for example, Hitchens, Hitchens appears to provide an even hand against uh, the Taliban and the US Christian religious right and against Saddam Hussein in equal measure. But at the end of the day, he not only supported both wars... As a former leftist, he helped provide them with political cover. He is proud of the role he feels he played in justifying the Iraq war and making it possible. And he apparently boasts as much in the autobiography he was touring until he came down with cancer. In short, Christopher Hitchens' ver version of atheism is an obscene political reaction dressed as crass intellectual elitism and it has nothing in common with Marxism. Just to be clear, although most socialists are atheists and materialism is an atheist philosophy, Marxists are not fighting for an atheist world. We're fighting for a socialist world. In dialectical terms, if religion is the thesis and atheism is the antithesis, socialism is the synth synthesis. Marx called it the negation of the negation. What, do, what does this mean? It means that we believe that socialism will answer the agonising questions that religion asks, not with spiritual solutions, but material practical ones. Socialism will remove these questions altogether and present us with new, hopefully much more enlightening ones. Religion is a cry for hope against a brutal system. For socialists, such hope is necessary if we are ever to see the world we want. It's not possible to go forward with people isolated and atomised and beaten down. At the same time where religious ideas hold their least appeal is when people find real alternatives in solidarity and struggle. It's through such struggle that I believe people will change the world and change themselves in this protest process. As Eugene Debs, the American socialist, once articulated it so finely, too long have the workers of the world waited for some Moses to lead, lead them out of bondage. I would not lead you out if I could, for if you could be led out, you could be led back again. I would have you make up your minds that there is nothing you cannot do for yourselves. By their own hands, working-class people must create the history that lies before us. In the process of fighting for their own emancipation, millions of people will be so changed by the process as to be almost unrecognisable. Imagine if we lived in a world in which every member of society lived from cradle to grave, supported and secure, trying, not trying desperately to ignore the feeling that at any point the bottom might fall out of our lives. If workers win the society we are hoping for, a socialist society that is geared towards human ends, not, not the ends of profit. They will create ideas and knowledge and art and philosophy, the like of which we cannot now really imagine. People long for feelings of solidarity and kindness and meaning. We long for moments of beauty and awe and wonder in our lives. We have so precious little of any of these in our lives right now, and people must find it wherever they can. A revolution, if it is ever to succeed, will be made by Christians and Muslims, Buddhists and spiritualists, Hindus and Jews and agnostics and atheists, and the common ground we must find is, do you think it is necessary to stand up against this system that daily sucks the lives out of all of us? Do you think it is by our own hands that we must do this, by protesting and striking and occupying? And since we're not quite at the stage of revolution, which unfortunately we are not, the question for right now is this, what is the next step in that fight and can we agree to take it together?
Okay, so we've got just less than 30 minutes for discussion, and that means that if everyone was to speak in this room, we'd have less than a minute each to talk. So I'm going to try and keep people to about one minute, but I re I'm sorry, two, two minutes. But I really want to um, encourage as much discussion as possible, so please just feel free at any time to put up your hand if you want to speak. And uh, I've, got, I've got you. And... Um, and I'll keep a list of, of people I'm going to call on, and I'll uh, call on you probably by an article of clothing. So, um, yeah, let's get started. If you in the black shirt want to start. Yeah. Um, I wonder, um, it seems to me that it's not just any particular human system that um, threatens our sense of security, but sort of the nature of life itself. I mean, an asteroid could come, there's sickness, there's earthquakes. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just address that a little bit, too. Uh, it seems to me a little bit dangerous to uh, look to anything that we humans can do on Earth to kind of provide a kind of secure um, and fulfilling environment. I know we can do a lot better, but there's like these limits, and um, I think spirituality is part of that, too. In the glasses. In the First of all, are you selling copies of your paper? I just thought it was excellent. <laughs> are you writing a book? Um, yes. Good. Um, the question I have, I, I'm an ordained minister, came out of the GTU in Berkeley, and um, do community ministry. And um, I've read a Marxist article um, years ago, and there was a quote that stuck in my mind, written by Marx, of course, and um, it said that in his opinion, the um, avarice, avarice huckster Jews, not meaning all Jews, but the ones that were avarice hucksters, would um, something about uh, corrupt the um, the Christians, but of course you know, they can find job themselves. But and that ultimate capitalism, they would help ultimate capitalism destroy the world. Is that does that ring a bell? Not completely, but other people might be food. The general tone of it does, okay. but yeah. Okay. yeah. So, um, of course, in the anti-Semitic you know, climate that we live in, any such statement you know, doesn't get very far, doesn't get very much air um, or discussion. But um, if you had any comments about that, I'd be interested. So I'll, I'll have Rachel come back before the very end, but I'll, I'll take like two or three people at once before she comes back to see her. Okay. Um, so I've got you in the boycott, Arizona. <laughs> um, my question was right on top of what the lady with the eye on the shirt said. Um, and you answered some of hers. Um, do you have any articles out in maybe SWs on religion or, or ISRs or, any, or anything? And um, are there any books here that you would recommend on this topic? Um, so in the black sweatshirt in the back. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, um, I thought what I thought was interesting that you talked about, um, my name is Laura, by the way, from San Diego. Um, you talked about uh, the fact that re religion is for the need for some kind of spiritual relief or emotional or mental, like relief of mental anguish and some kind of support. <coughs> I grew up Southern Baptist. Um, not anymore, but grew up, you know, grew up that way, and that, that was the goal. There were a lot of a lot of poverty in the South. I'm from North Georgia, where there's a lot of non-union um, shop carpet mills, and 
chicken processing plant, so there's a lot of poor people. And they used the religion not only offered a spiritual and like an emotional support, but also actual financial support. Like there were a lot of people that couldn't get it. There's no welfare. There's no nothing. So they they would actually, if your house burned down, it was the church that brought you clothes and food and. You know, could keep you alive for another few weeks. If you lost a job, we would take collections. And I just, that was the part of the church that meant the most to me. Um, once I got into missionary work, I was a little unsure about it. But then I was like, you know, I like the part where we give people things that they need because they can't get it otherwise. So I think that's another part of our argument. It's not just uh, emotional support, it's also actual, like, material support that people get where they, we don't, they don't get it from the state, and they should. And that's one of the things we should be arguing. It's great that you get support for your church, but it should be coming from the state. You know, that's that's something that we need to remember. And you know, and you actually want me open an argument a comrade had with me about signs at um, gay rights protests because he made an argument he didn't like some of the atheist signs. He said, "I don't see the point of that. I mean, we're at a church. There's obviously people here who believe. Why are we like pitching this atheist message?" And I'm like, "I heard your argument. Like, dang, I totally lost that. I didn't even realize it." But you know, so I thought that was great that you brought that up. In the black hat. Hi, Miriam. Um, it was just, like one question that I, I don't know, like, I've been struggling with. Or it's like, how do we win people over? Like, over like, it's like folks that are really passive about um, certain issues. Because I know, like, religion, like, yeah, religion, organized religion, uh, teaches folks to like. Uh, that the meek shall inherit the world, or that God will deliver for those who are patient and long term and continue in their suffering. And um, I understand how religion can be used as a, like, as a force for like, liberation, especially for, like, and also to challenge like, others, like, like ideas, and especially like, class ideas. But like, that's one thing that I've been struggling with, like, how to link over those folks that are like, Extremely like passive, and just really kind of the deliverance. In that brown shirt with uh, glasses. Yeah. Um, I sort of come at this discussion uh, as a member of a Unitarian Universalist church, which is, um, I think, very different than many of the religions that get uh, the rightful brunt of some of our uh, dissatisfaction. Um, and I think your point to to say there are different faith traditions who uh, are likely to join us in struggles, and there are other ones that are not. Um, and so we do have to keep in mind that um, faith traditions, I think, based on uh, charismatic leadership, are probably the ones that we want to look out for. But that there are um, religious uh, groups who are working with us. Um, and um, in terms of uh, Prop 8, uh, the protests in the last year, there have been a broad spectrum of religious leadership who have joined us uh, in the streets and in uh, presentations. And I also wanted to mention that, um, in, uh, that I went to the, the Phoenix uh, Immigrants' Rights Rally, and religion was a central portion of this. So clearly, um, there is an important connection that we can make as progressive, uh, uh, progressive uh, movement. Um, and um, the conclusion just ran out of my head. <laughs> <laughs>
hear um, politicians who live comfortably, they don't have to worry about these things that, that always claim that, oh, you know, I'm a churchgoer, like Bush, um, but then, you know, they don't have to, you know, um, you know uh, scrub the faith to, you know, feed their families. Hi, I'm Alessandro from Oakland. I'm also a student at Maine College. Um, I just kind of want to talk about um, the Marxist remarks on, on Judaism and the Jews. Well, first of all, let, let's, let's be very clear. Like at the time, anti-Semitism was just it was it was the norm, right? And so, but that doesn't mean we have to polish polish a church, right? I mean, anti-Semitic language is not excusable under any circumstances. I also think you need to understand, like, at the time he wrote that, like, on the Jewish question, he was very, he was still, like, a neo-Hegelian, right? And his writing was bad, he was still developing his whole um, theory about capitalism, and if you read Engels' remarks on his writings at the time, you say, well, clearly, Marx's writings are just plain awful, so, you know. But, I mean, what, what he's trying to do, what he, I mean, and I'm not really doing it justice here, if you really want to, like, read more about it, you should definitely read John Rose, who's a British Marxist who writes all about you know, the Jewish question. You should also read on the Jewish question um, by Marx. But basically, he kind, of makes an, he kind of makes an argument where at the time, like Judaism was basically interchangeable with money changers. I mean, and that's the only way that the Jews actually survived antiquity is because they were kind of like ghettoized into this one trade, which was like money trading and dealing with credit and stuff like that. And so he basically, you know, he kind of writes a really bad pun, which is he, Judaism is like equating with capitalism, so that's why it comes, he actually, it comes, comes across with him saying like the Jews will basically destroy the world, when in fact he's actually arguing that capitalism will destroy the world. It's a terrible pun, let's not, you know, let's not, let's not try to excuse it. But at the end of the day, I think we just have to say that, you know, Marx was not, was not anti-Semitic, because the person that he's having this debate with, Bruno Bauer, you know, Bruno Brown saying, oh, well, you just got to be secular and everything will be good. And then Marx is like, no, let's, you know, we want to have freedom of religion and, you know, the Jews have a right to be, you know, to determine their own destiny. And then later on, what does Bruno Bauer become? He becomes the most rabid, anti-Semitic supporter of the Prussian state. And at one point, and I'll just end with this, Bauer says, describes the Jews in, in Prussia as an eyesore. But then Marx responds saying, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, Okay, the Jews are an eyesore. Well, that eyesore is a part of my eye, and it's a part of me that you know raised me, and I will never forget it. And it's the and and I'm proud to have that eyesore. So. Yeah, actually. Yeah. My name's Daniel. Um, six years ago, I moved back to Beirut, Lebanon. I'm happy to be here. Um, five years, I've been living within, I would say, more or less an Islamic context, and I very much appreciate your presentation today because it's speaking of something that has bothered me since I've gone back, which is the inability to separate in certain parts of the world religion from politics. Um, I would like to present some historical notes which might be beneficial to us as we're talking. One is the fact that in 1958 in Iran, it was a democratically elected socialist president, Musadiyah, who was overthrown by the CIA to bring back the Shah of Iran. So the idea of socialism existing in this part of the world has a long history. In the Quran, we, we say oppression is worse than murder. So the, the, the phrases you are using from the Bible have their counterpart in the Quran. An Islamic scholar who supported Musada in his revolution, uh, Ali Shariati, um, who was later sort of killed for his writing, 
uh, wrote a book, a critique of Marx. This was decades ago. Um, what set up was a dialectic that I feel that we're following now, which is which is awesome, um, but was never responded to. I think because this idea of secularism has taken prominence because it is a synonym for modernism. It is a synonym for the uh, capitalist world that we've come into. This is the future. This is where we are. This is beyond the myth. This is beyond the spiritual aspect. It completely denies, as we're talking about, the need for the spirituality, however it manifests itself. Uh, I'll present a couple of interesting contradictions that I've come across in Beirut. One is the fact that at a socialism conference in Egypt, present were Hamas and the Hezbollah. So you have all of a sudden at a conference for socialists, these religious organizations. We're talking about tactics that are used by Sarkozy and people of his ilk against religious groups. And again, it becomes something where by isolating Hamas, they have returned to a fundamentalist protection of themselves. Whereas before, they were opening up. Same with Hezbollah. Hezbollah just came out with a new uh, manifesto, which includes many of the things that people talking to these people, and you would be saying the same thing. I'm not able to use words to say oppressed. I'm using a word from the Quran. Just say oppressor or the, the, the arrogant. This is a word from the Quran that is used in Islamic uh, economics as well. Uh, finally, I'll make it quick. There's a sheikh who lives on my street, and when you go into his house, his calligraphic payans to Ali and Hussein touching on the uh, Shia Muslim mission of resistance in the country. He has pictures of uh, Gamal Abdul Nasser, who was a secularist Pan-Arabist uh, in Egypt. But he also has pictures of Ho Chi Minh, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, uh, Hugo Chavez. To go to the southern suburbs during the 2006 war, Hugo Chavez was everywhere. And I guess what I'm saying is, the potential exists. The people are speaking in this language as their day-to-day -day language and their day-to-day -day reality. It behooves us, as you're saying, to look into this common cause. Because to come at them with an idea that you have to now leapfrog, you have to leapfrog into secularism, is a mistake. And I think that in, in uh, going back to this idea of common cause, this is where as we all come together, we'll move forward now. Me? Yeah. Alan from Chicago. Yeah, I mean, this is a very interesting discussion because religion is as complex as life. And our explanation of it has to be as complex as, as it is, right? Because I think there are a number of different folks. I, I want to bring up a, a, a different aspect because I think that religion can be experienced by people as a haven in a heartless world, but I think it can also be experienced, certainly by a minority, if not well, a significant minority of people is an oppressive force in their life, imposing conformity. That's certainly true, you know, for Christian, for anyone from a Christian background, anyone who questions their gender identity, you know, or, or sexuality, right? It, that that religion can be, you know, the 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 face of oppression, you know, in terms of the way that that religious ideas can be used to sort of abuse people into conformity. Also, you know, it's certainly true about the, the role of, 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 of women. And so I think it's important that as, as well as we, we welcome with people with religious views into the movement with no qualification or judgment, we also, I think, have to welcome people who, whose first steps towards radicalization are rejecting the religious <laughs> ideas that represent 
the oppression uh, uh, behind them. I think that that's important because that can be the very first step. And it goes back to something that Rachel said about the, the question of, of the conservatizing role, that, that the conservative role that religion plays in society. That, that the dominant religion idea, religious ideas, and this is something that socialist aftermarks wrote about, reflect the, um, the ideology of the ruling class and represent an attempt you know, a, a formation of an ideology that explains the world as it is with all its divisions and its oppressions as a natural outcome. Now the truth is that, that it doesn't always stay that way and, it, and religion can become an expression of people's, the conditions of people's own lives and even the, the conditions of, uh, you know, even their, their sense of struggle and, and their sense of a struggle for a better life. But let's remember that there's always a tension there. Martin Luther King was not the only black clergy in the civil rights movement. Some of the, the, the black clergy were conservative, right? He had to fight them in the letter for, for a Birmingham jail was to clergy who, who refused to take part in the struggle and who, saw, who played the, the classic uh, uh, role of religion of, of sort of uh, you know, holding back the idea of being moderate, of counseling patients, and ultimately of waiting to the afterlife for, for your experience that... that you know uh, uh, the, the justice that, that you hope for. I think that that's really uh, um, something that we need to be able uh, to talk about because there's all sorts of ways that you know. I think that the point you made about the way that that religion can be something that gives people material support right now is a really important thing. But the other thing you added is absolutely that what we have to say, which is that it shouldn't be. You know, that welfare should be distributed through religious organizations. And in that sense, I am for secularism. I think we have to defend secularism. And it's been a part of, of all the struggles of the poor in the past to not have to, to, you know, in the 1930s, if you read, or 20s and 30s, if you read the IWW and the, the activists, Part of their argument is against the Bible-thumping evangelism of the Salvation Army, and that you know we have to tolerate their religious you know ideas before we can have any sort of aid. They, you know, so there's a tension there, and there's part of the struggle is it, got to be about trying to, to rid the idea that you have to accept any of these these sort of ideas in order to to, to gain material support, and that's where I think an argument in favor of secularism actually is very important. We want people to be able to, to have all of the means of, of life that they need, uh, uh, the material means of life, without having to accept uh, 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 those ideas. Okay, um, so I've got five people left on the list, and um, unless you're really desperate to get your hand up, I think I'm going to wrap it up with these, these last five. So, um, mm -hmm. Mo Shirt, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hello, my name's Nicole, I'm from Portland, and I'm really fortunate to actually work on um, just a few months ago, I actually had huge honor of being able to be a part of a, of a uh, kind of an interfaith dialogue where I got to go in and listen to a Muslim youth group, and uh, so these are college students, and two things that, uh, that struck me and still stick with me, and particularly thank you for bringing up Rachel and everything that's going on with friends, but um, uh, one thing was that uh, one of the young men there uh, said that uh, that the students had to be more vocal about what Islam is and what it means to them. Because right now, if Americans aren't hearing it, right now, how Americans are hearing about it is through Fox News. Like Bill O'Reilly and Glenn Beck are the ones that are talking about it, which was interesting because I thought, wow, well, as a socialist, that's, we're kind of through that same filter, too, in many ways. That's how, they, that's how many Americans get their ideas of what socialism is as well, at least my uncle does. 
And then, <laughs> the, and then the second thing was that a young woman in full burqa uh, said um, that what's been most surprising for her being in America is that when she came to America, she knew the word freedom was tossed around a lot, and she thought that freedom to be, that freedom meant freedom to be me, not freedom to be what you or you or you think I should be. And she specifically pointed at us, those of us who were not, you know, with, with their community. And both of those comments just struck me. Um, and so I often do share and go about as you're talking with other folks, particularly about what's going on in France, because with what we've seen what's going on in Arizona, who knows how far we're willing to go in these states. So. <laughs> Um, so yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, not sorry. The person in front of you is the long brown hair. Sorry, yeah, um, I'm Becca. I'm also from Portland. Um, I think like the comments about how religion can be a really positive aspect of the movements that we're involved in are really are really good. But as we know, like often our movements reflect the contradictions in the society that we live in. And sometimes religion is actually plays a divisive role inside of our movements. Like for instance, there's a police anti-police brutality movement going on in Portland right now. And the leadership of that movement um, is very religious. It's called the Albina Ministerial Alliance. Um, and they've done wonderful, wonderful work opposing police violence. Um, recently, a contingent of um, LGBTQ activists went into one of their meetings and said, we experience the same kinds of violence as your community does at the hands of the police oftentimes, and we want to be a part of building this movement. And they were almost completely dismissed, um, even though they had come there in support and in solidarity with that movement. Um, and this, this has happened in the past also on the Immigrants' Rights Movement, where we've had really hard time trying to convince like some of the sort of more conservative Catholic elements of the movement to work with other other groups. Also, um, I'm from New Haven and there's a really big Seventh-day Adventist population there and they're very much um, liberation theology, but their um, methods for movement building also actually include a lot of really like sexist and homophobic oftentimes rhetoric. And I feel like I, I really agree that like liberation theology can be such a positive aspect of how we go about building these movements, but like I kind of wanted to hear back from people about how they were able to sort of like break down some of these walls within our movements that are actually created by like the, the sort of negative aspects of religion. Hello, I'm Rachel. I'm from uh, Shoreline, which is just north of Seattle. Uh, I just wanted to thank you very, very much. I'm a uh, uh, progressive uh, Roman Catholic who is mm -hmm. in the process of swimming the Tiber to the Anglican Communion. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'm uh, uh, really involved with uh, uh, interfaith work, uh, mostly with the Muslim community uh, through the Council for um, American uh, Islamic Relations. And uh, which is an organization that you know does an awful lot of good work. One of the few advocacy organizations in the United States um, that uh, does such good work that it causes uh, causes a lot of uh, conservative elements to be uh, quite quite critical of. <laughs> so anyway, I just basically all I wanted to say was thank you so very much. I said it, it's very um, it is. Uh, at least in my experience, uh, somewhat unusual to be a, uh, a religious socialist, mm -hmm. at least around my So, I just wanted to, it's been a while, but I don't know if you're a quick reference to some of 
the comments that you brought up at the beginning about sort of all these, these things that can bring uncertainty to our lives and bring um, insecurity. And I think, I mean, some of the examples that you gave, like even, there may be always times where there's some insecurity, but I think like even in the cases of like earthquakes and natural disasters and disease, a lot of the reason why these have such a huge impact on our lives is not that, that they're uncontrollable in their own way. I mean, obviously, it's not like someone's making a hurricane on their own, but, it, but like, it's kind of a sort of the merger of, like, you know, building codes, you know, you know Haiti, the reason why the earthquake in Haiti was so bad was not the strength of the earthquake alone. It was the fact this was a horribly impoverished nation that had been facing American colonialism all sorts of problems, and that was the reason why there was such devastation there. So I think, you know, in a society where we can actually take care of these sort of problems based on like what people really need, even those sort of insecurities would be minimized, I think. And there there's definitely still could be a place for religion, but it doesn't necessarily have to be to comfort these insecurities. So I'll ask if it will be you have been shared here. Yeah, my name is Joe, and I'm uh, from San Francisco. And Rachel, thanks a lot. Uh, uh, I really didn't have, have much of an understanding of where religion fits within the uh, Marxist uh, society, and uh, you've clarified that a lot. Uh, that you know, there is a place for some form of genuine religion. Uh, uh, you know, my experience has been that. Uh, you know, the more I have benefited from a capitalist society, and uh, you know, I've lived uh, times when I've had no work, no money, uh, and other times that you know I've been comfortable in terms of uh, capitalism has taken care of at least my needs. Uh, you know, I've earned enough money to uh, uh, so that I can uh, obtain what you know what I want. Uh, but it seems to me that uh, you know when I was benefiting from, in times I've benefited from a capitalist society, uh, yeah. religion is very much more removed from my life than when uh, you know I wasn't earning money, uh, didn't know exactly uh, you know where I was going to find money for the next uh, for the following week for the rent and so on. Uh, so I mean, it's, you know, we get uh, capitalists who uh, uh, seem to uh, identify with the religious right and benefit from the religious right. But I think the more authentic uh, uh, understanding is that uh, you know a ruling class, a capitalist class, uh, you know, doesn't need religion. I mean, well, I think if your people are honest, when you have money, you don't need religion. Uh, money can take care of all of uh, you know the your personal needs, human needs, and uh, uh, at least that's the uh, the fallacy that we live under. Uh, uh, not so, it's totally true, but I think the way we uh, live in a capitalist society uh, says uh, uh, what we can buy is going to save us. Uh, you know, it, 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 there is some truth that uh, you know, in my opinion, capitalism is more really anti-religion than uh, a socialist uh, society. Thank you. 
So thanks for a great discussion. I've got a couple of announcements I'd like to make before I pass it back to Rachel. One is that if you're interested in joining the International Socialist Organization or want to know more about our politics, want information on local branches or meetings, activities and events, or would like to start your own branch, come and check out our ISO table near registration where you can ask members um, questions and get info so it's just outside of the door past the Haymarket Room. There will also be a special lunch session on Saturday from 1 to 2 in the Kolontai Room Excuse me, for people who are new to the ISO and considering joining or starting a branch. And finally, this entire weekend, the Haymarket Book Room just there will be open during all the sessions until 10pm. All Haymarket titles and books by authors speaking at this conference are 20% off. Thank you. I didn't figure out where I was going to start. I'm sorry. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll, I guess I'll start with the question of, or, or the the issue of what happens when we um, when we come up against um, people's prejudice within social movements um, put into a religious guise. Because I think that that's really what we're talking about here. Like homophobia can exist within movements, whether or not the people who are homophobic are religious. In this case, though, the fact that they're religious sounds like it's actually made a difference to you know conditioning them into feeling it's okay to be homophobic. And that's not okay with us. It is never okay with us that any kind of um, division be allowed to um, foster within our movements that, um, you know, like homophobia, like sexism, like racism, like anti-Muslim racism, none of these things are, are okay in our movements and we do, we absolutely need to take a stand against it. I think the main point of what I was saying with that is that we need to address the political questions, not the religious ones. So in, in that kind of case, it's, it's very important to point out, like, our movement will be stronger the more people we have in it. And actually, it will be politically more convincing if we can stand up for everyone who has who's been a victim of police violence, you know, and, the, and and if we can actually forge unity in our community to resist the police as a whole, then the police start to look foolish across the board, and we can, and, you know, and we can put pressure on them from a range of different fronts, and to make the argument politically with people, you know, um, for why it's actually important that we get rid of homophobia in our movements, and that anyone be able to be free to walk around the streets without being harassed, and and that can be a process, and you know, a lot of people here who are involved with movements probably have a lot more experience in going about doing that um, in, in different contexts than I do. So, uh, but I think the starting point is always, you know, we absolutely reject any kind of oppression um, you know, from, being, from fostering within our movements um, and we need to take on those political questions. And the same is true if somebody um, you know, comes up to a socialist organisation um, and, uh, you know, for example, wants to become a member of a socialist organisation but is not willing to defend LGBT rights because of their religion, then we have to say, you know, we've got to talk to you about why you actually have to stand up against homophobia, why it's important for every socialist to be able to take, take that step or a stand for women's rights or any number of other things. So it's not that we leave aside those, those political questions when it comes to kind of engaging people um, you know, with religious ideas. It's just that we've got to not assume that people with religious ideas have those political questions, you know, because a lot of people don't. And a few people have spoken to more, more liberal religions that exist, and I grew up in you know, one such more liberal kind of context. And it did hit its limits for me because it was still a church where ministers who believed in gay clergy wouldn't publicly defend it. And that was a real problem for me. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I grew up believing that 
everyone, you know, had the right to their sexuality and their right, you know, women were men's equals and all of those things. I was raised in that and raised in a religious household and we need to understand that in this country too there's a whole variance in religious ideas. Um, and so when people, when Mormons come into the struggle with us, it, you know, it's, we welcome them, even from very conservative churches. Um, and, and if whole church groups want to get involved in, in our fight, then we welcome them as well. But we, but we will not stand for uh, any kind of you know, prejudice and oppression to continue to foster within our movements. Um, the question of the um, insecurity of life, I think people have spoken to that fairly well. And I don't think that we'll completely get rid of it. There'll still be disease. There'll still be things that kind of cause a sense of uncertainty in life. And I think that people will learn to handle that how, how they will in a socialist society. When, when it's not so systemic, then the need to pray every day maybe just goes away for people a little bit. I know I, I really sympathise with the person who said that the harder things get, the more religious you become. Like the, I, I became an atheist you know, a number of years ago, and it's, nothing's made me want to take up religion again more than moving back to the United States in the midst of an economic crisis. So, um, so I think, you know, without that kind of... We want a world where systemically people are not living in that kind of condition. We want a world where we actually work to eliminate it. And so, you know, when I was still living in Australia, the tsunami hit Southeast Asia. There were early warnings to Australian towns that were never even hit and yet towns in, in parts of Indonesia and in Thailand were never warned to get out of the way of this tsunami. It's, it's capitalism that destroys people's lives. It's capitalism that kills so many people during these, these disasters. Earthquakes do kill people in this country, but, but I can't remember how many people died in Haiti, but it's horrific. You know, we all know how horrific it was. And that has not happened in a, in a wealthy country um, in a very long time. And so we can build a human society to protect us from some of these things. And I think that the fact that religion, you know, has existed in a lot of non-class societies says that, you know, people had food insecurity in a lot of these societies because they didn't necessarily, you know, couldn't guarantee that they would always have a food supply. So religion was related often to things like helping the food to grow, you know, and things like that. So that's real. Um, and it may continue to be real under socialism. I think the, the main thing I want to say about that is that people will work out what they need to support themselves in a socialist society. The point is that the state will not promote one idea over another and that people in the process of actually developing their new ideas and taking control of, of their lives will feel very, very differently about what kind of um, ideas they need to actually support them. So um, the question of... On the Jewish question, the, some of the language in it is really um, horrific and we have to condemn it, and I think Alessandro spoke to that really well. Um, uh, the general uh, direction of his argument in that is also really important, as, as Alessandro also pointed out, which is um, to defend the right of Jews to, to live in the Prussian state um, freely and with the same rights as, as uh, Lutheran uh, and uh, Christian citizens. So, um, so that's important, but we also we absolutely have to be clear that that kind of language is unacceptable and not reproduce it and quote it and not, and not defend it. Um, and then on the question of secularism, I think that that's absolutely right. Secularism doesn't mean freedom of churches to do whatever they want and to get funded by enormous <laughs> businesses and then go into people's lives and tell them what kind of lives they can lead. Secularism does not mean that, that you know, the, the people delivering food to homeless people on the street get to ask them about their sexuality, which actually happens a, a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Secularism does not mean the government should fund child protection services that judge 
charge people on the basis of their religion when they go into people's homes and take their kids away if they're from a, a slightly kind of confu- you know slightly uh, a religious background that, that the provider doesn't agree with um, or, or um, you know or doesn't support. And so, how are we going to get rid of religious prejudice by defending secularism in the state and absolutely saying the state should provide services for everybody and should provide what people need and not do it through religious agencies but through the state, through a universal healthcare system, through universal systems of child support, through universal systems of counselling and all the other things that we need as well as you know food banks and, and so, uh, social security and all the other things that we need um, and, and it should all be done through the state um, and, and none of it should be done through religious agencies and then we can have we can start to defend freedom of religion for any person who wants to have that freedom of religious conscience because they won't need to turn to um, religious uh, institutions to provide them with their basic needs. There's a reason, the, somebody mentioned poverty in the South, there's a reason why the Bible Belt is the Bible Belt. The South has been an oppressed part of this country for, um, you know, because it, because, it, it was a, because it was the slave part of the country and because when people fought off slavery there was a political reaction that, that then repressed the, the poor um, and working people of the South, um, particularly people of colour but also all poor people in the South and, that, you know, and kept the unions out and all the other things and that whole history has also led to um, you know, a, a situation where people do have churches that provide them with the social support that they don't get elsewhere and we need a situation where the state is actually providing all those things. So um, I think that you know, people are not passive. Religious, it is true that religious ideas teach passivity but I also have heard some fantastic stories recently and I think that it's a product of the fact that people are really starting to question politics much more broadly that um, there's some young people who've talked about uh, having left their churches Somebody was telling me about, uh, you know, being in a Catholic church and hearing about how the Catholic church was going to go on the um, anti-abortion march, what do they call it, the right to life march, whatever they call it, um, and, and that she sat in that church and thought that was really uh, wrong and went along to the counter-protest, um, you know, through, through hearing about that through their church. There's another person who, you know, has been involved in the budget cuts work who recently broke from a church that told her that it was a sin to get politically active. I mean, there are some churches that tell people that, you know, and I've, I've actually come across more than one and I think that you know the answer to that is absolute rubbish you need to do what your conscience tells you to do and what your heart and soul tells you to do and you need to be able to fight for yourself and if that means that we go into the church and tell your pastor what's what then you know then I'll, I'll be there with you if you want me to to be there so but people you know are drawing their own conclusions from life and from the world and people don't ever sit with one set of ideas and just say you know this is the idea that I'm going to hold for all time people always kind of questioning life and what we present them if there's a real political alternative when we build real movements to actually offer people real life then um, then we uh, actually have a chance of drawing m- you know many more people into our struggle um, when we when we actually when our struggle actually presents um, itself on a, with a much larger face so I think I'll leave it there um, I don't have any articles and books at this point but I do strongly recommend um, this is a book of Marx's early writings and you'll find um, the se- uh, sections that I quoted uh, in a lot of these in the uh, critique of Hegel's philosophy of law and uh, the, uh, on the Jewish Question article as well as the thesis on Feuerbach. There's some excellent um, uh, pieces in there and I really do recommend going back to Marx. This book, The Meek and the Militant, is a very interesting read um, on Marx's theory of religion as well as a lot of basically ethnographic study and historical study of re- different religions from around the world and really looking at them from a uh, perspective of their class basis and their historical foundations and so on. There's a lot of um, great material in here and I recommend that too, The Meek and the Militant. Um, 
so I may one day write a book on Marxism and religion um, <laughs> and uh, uh, when I get some time on my hands and um, so keep an eye out for that one in about 2020 or something <laughs> but um, yeah thanks everyone <laughs> The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.